Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, it's a big world on the American Shoreline. And, you know, you never know who is going to step forward to tackle some of the most complicated problems that arise. We're used to interviewing lots of policy experts and scientists and people in government, federal, state, and local. And sometimes the common citizens who reside along the shoreline and care about the shoreline take the initiative. And that's what this show is about. It is an incredible story of an amazing project that has been undertaken by a guy named Gary Gleck uh, here in Texas. It's the establishment of the Rio Grande uh, Valley Offshore Artificial Reef System. It's an amazing story. It is. And I suppose we should talk about the aircraft noise right here off the bat, right? (laughs) We should. So, folks, you might hear a little sound. This is the first, one of the first live interviews we've done in a while. And uh, so Gary is in the studio with us. We have the door open because it's COVID season and uh, we want to be careful. So uh, you might hear uh, we're in the we're in the we're in the jet flyway for the Austin. If, the, if the wind Airport. is blowing in the right direction, it can, it's you're going to hear it. <laughs> we're going to try to contend with it. But we're going to try to contend with it if we have to. Uh, take a few breaks um, during airplane passovers, uh, we will do that. But anyway, it is great to be in person with Gary Glick, a coastal citizen activist who has created a, an organization that is doing serious work. And, and yeah. uh, we have had the pleasure of watching this organization really grow from the beginning. And it's, it's neat to, to come back and look at uh, now uh, an organization that has matured to a point where they've deployed a bunch of material out there millions of pounds and conducted serious scientific inquiry and have results so now we get to look yeah. at not only how this uh, reef was created what it is how it's built uh, where the materials are supplied from all that stuff yeah but we also get to think of it as an institution how it was created how a citizen can change their coast uh, wherever they are. It's a great story. So joining us today on the podcast is going to be Gary Glick, the president of what's called the Friends of the RGV Reef. If you're at a place where you can uh, follow along, rgreef.org is the website. It's absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. But let's first have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Gary, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thanks for sitting down with us in person. What a treasure and a, and a privilege to uh, see you face-to-face and catch up again. Yeah, this is nice. I was just thinking back to our first Really, our first interactions were um, I hired you as a grant writer six years ago. Because it was it six years ago? 2015 yeah. uh, or 16. And, you know, when we were just a bunch of mugs with a glint in our eye and a piece of concrete in each hand standing on the dock, the, um, 
my, how our little boy has grown. Indeed, indeed. Uh, and then after we kind of had our first little blush of, of getting some money together and deploying some material, we did a podcast maybe three or four years ago. And um, it's kind of nice to look back. Yeah. Well, a lot has happened. Well, and just by, by way of quick, quick background here, Gary, talk a little bit about why uh, the RGV Reef was created initially. What was the initial inspiration for it? Um, my brother and I had grown up fishing um, and did it a lot. And, oh, when we got into our 30s or late 20s, we decided that we were going to have to get real lives and we got real jobs and uh, didn't fish quite so much. And then in the teens, we had the the wherewithal to start to fish offshore again and Man, fishing, especially in state waters, was really um, poor. The um, there just was very few fish there, and we thought we should try to do something about it. And we were going to uh, try to build some little artificial reef that would make a difference. And pretty quickly figured out that oh, pretty much everything we wanted to do was probably going to be a felony without a permit and that since we're at South Padre Island where there's all kinds of surveillance going on because of all of the the uh, offshore drug trafficking and snapper poaching that we were going to get caught and sure enough we found out later that we absolutely would have gotten caught those boys can oh for a while they had a balloon up that could do facial recognition at 17 miles we'd have gotten caught mm -hmm. so uh, as part of my day job i uh piddle around with government permits and i thought well maybe we can get a permit and um so we started working on that and all we wanted to do was make a little bit better place to fish the area that our work is in is is in deep deep south texas which um has a lot of really nice things going for it but it's not a place that the rest of Texas considers to be, many people consider everything south of Loop 410 in San Antonio to be not quite Texas. And so we knew that if we didn't do everything perfectly um, in terms of showing community uh, support for this reef, that we weren't going to get the reef. And as a consequence, we chummed up, oh, all kinds of political figures and conservation groups and fishing groups and um, there's a college down there uh, University of Texas RGV it was UT Brownsville at that time and it turns out that there we just stumbled into this incredibly good biologist everything you want a marine biologist to be a guy that's on the water a lot really perceptive I mean, at first, when we were told we should get a biologist, I was thinking, you know, I mean, we've got tens of thousands of hours on the water and thousands of hours underwater. What could he have seen that we haven't seen? Nothing. He just saw what wasn't there. And on all these high-profile, uh, naturally occurring reefs, and of course on uh, oil rigs and, and other artificial high-profile reefs, uh, there are mature fish. 
So, Gary, before we dive deeper into the in, in, into the work of the uh, Friends of the RGVV Reef, Rio Grande Valley Reef, uh, you and your brother Bob, this is 2014, you guys are fishermen, you notice the declining uh, conditions of fishing opportunities, decide to do something. At what point did you guys decide to form a nonprofit organization? You are the president, by the way, of Friends of the RGV Reef. So, Gary, when did you and your brother Bob get serious about the idea of creating a nonprofit organization and trying to deploy a big artificial reef off the South Texas coast? When we figured out that we weren't just going to make a place to fish, what we were going to do is try to generate a nursery reef and grow fish. And to generate a nursery reef, you need a large area so you can make a large diffuse low profile set of, of of patch reefs is what we build to grow babies and if we were going to do that it wasn't just going to be oh some of us local fishermen will get together and and now that we have a permit we'll put a little bit of concrete out there to try to attract fish from elsewhere elsewhere short of fish and this marine biologist showed us that that we could grow fish and that there were a lot of juvenile fish there that were suffering extremely high mortality. And we managed to communicate that to some of our conservation partners and Texas Parks and Wildlife. Um, and so they permitted for us at this giant reef. It's 1,650 acres. It's like the third largest reef on the entire uh, Gulf Coast. It's the largest uh, artificial reef off the Texas coast. And we knew we'd bitten off a little bit more of that bite of the sandwich than we'd originally wanted to munch on. And so we needed to get serious about it because we were going to have to get other people's money. Yeah, and and building anything offshore is always an expensive endeavor uh, and requires a lot of permitting and... Uh, I think it was definitely the correct assessment that you were entering kind of a a, a, a big league level of play here. Um, but I am interested in the state of reef building at that point, because ladies and gentlemen, if you're imagining in your mind an artificial reef, you're probably thinking of those pyramids that are set up or some sort of dome kind of a habitat structure reef ball a reef ball those thank you peter of, those kind of things a ball kind of a concrete thing maybe they stick some shells in it right or you might be thinking of a a, a ship that might be uh, sunk or something along those lines but but what gary's talking about is an evolution in thinking into these low relief uh mounds of basically cinder blocks which changes the game in many respects because ch the, all of a sudden you don't have to buy these expensive reef balls. Uh, you can deploy just epic amounts of much more, I guess, a, a, a much more approachable uh, material. And you kind of came up with an industrial pipeline of this, of this material. Walk us through th that evolution of thought. Like, hey, I'm going to start deploying... Uh, uh, the cinder blocks and, and things of that nature. And how did that go over with the regulatory people? Cause that to me represented a bit of a departure. Well, uh, not, it wasn't a difficulty with the regulatory people, um, except that Texas parks and wildlife was afraid we wouldn't drop our material inside the boundaries of the reef. 
Um, but we haven't managed to uh, drop anything outside the boundaries yet, 72 million pounds later. So we, we knew that we weren't going to be able to populate this reef if we were going to do so at the price levels of normal reefing contracts uh, with using prefabricated um, reefing pyramids, which it's what we do is damn difficult. And as a consequence, um, for the last 20 years, people have been deploying monocultures of uh, only large structures and in these reefing pyramids. And the reefing pyramids are are great habitat for mature yeah. fish, um, but they're only one rung in the habitat ladder. And they're really, you can't make them very complex. And if you want to have a... Um, big species richness and lots of total biomass you've got to get everybody to come and play and if you want to get everybody to come and play you need all the different heights and complexities sizes of complexity sizes of hidey holes these fish are hiding from big bad in in the different sizes of cracks and crevices that you generate um if you want to grow a lot of fish you've got to make an entire cohesive inclusive web and um we kind of a knew that that was what we needed to do and because we found a great marine biologist and then of course because nobody's ever done this before we also started reaching out to and pestering all the other great red snapper biologists all the way up the coast and around even up to the uh, learning from the boys in in Alabama, the materials, of course, were going to have to be cheap. And uh, you know, all of us are a little bit older. We we all came from kind of tough backgrounds: farming, ranching, commercial fishing, uh, entrepreneurial backgrounds. And um, so, what that meant was we're going to have to take somebody else's trash and make it into fish treasure. Mm-hmm. And you're holding your finger well, up. <laughs> well, Gary, I want to, you know, we keep talking about the mystery biologist that was advising you and your brother in the early stages of the RGV Reef. And do you mind telling us who that is? Well, if you hadn't cut me off well, earlier, I, I'd, <laughs> I'd finish. I'm dying so, to know. It's the mystery guy. So so it's Dr. Richard Klein at UTRGV. Yes. Uh, um, he's the one that clued us in that said, okay, you've seen all these big fish on the, all the places that you dive. You ever see any babies? No, we never thought about the babies. It, it turns out that the, according to CMAP data, the densest uh, <clears throat> population of juvenile red snapper in the entire Gulf of Mexico is between South Padre Island and, and Port Aransas. So we have all of these juvenile red snapper that essentially have no habitat and, and suffer enormous mortality. The, the mortality numbers... 90% of them disappear every 30 days. Luckily, red snapper are one of the most fecund species of fish in the world. They cough up a lot of eggs. And so we've got this naturally occurring bunch of juvenile snapper that we can try to help along provide habitat to. And uh, that's that's the piece that Dr. Klein started with. And then, you know, I talk about the volunteers for RGV Reef and I don't think about Dr. Klein that much, but I'll bet he's put 30 hours into advising us 
every week since 2016. He's helped us with the placement of every single rock that's gone into RGV Reef. They've the entire reef, 72 million pounds, has been put down in multiple iterations of different uh, types of material, cinder blocks, uh, broken concrete, uh, concrete railroad ties from BNSF. You know, how are we going to generate the best, most long-lasting material? And nobody's ever done it before, so we're just we're going forward with the best information that we've got. There's some interesting research going on and and what we do changes just about with every deployment. Um, But yeah, Dr. Klein, you know, he's put together the science side of it. I got to be the talking head. My brother handles the money. And then the the other piece that uh, helps us be really efficient is we've got an industrial dock guy, Daniel Bryant, that has similarly given up giant chunks of his life to help us be efficient. And we're tremendously wow. efficient in putting out material on a cost per ton basis. It's, it's an extraordinary uh, organization. I, you pass over it fairly comfortably, but it's, it, let's just, for the record, you know, 1,650-acre artificial reef site. It's 12 miles offshore of South Padre Island, down by at the bottom end of Texas. 72 million tons of material uh, has been deployed into the reefing area. And this is you and your brother, a volunteer scientist, and a bunch of people and a bunch of folks who have contributed the material and the money. Tell us about the organization and your key people involved. How did you get everybody focused to execute this project. These are not simple things. These require, these are very highly regulatory, regulated activities. Uh, talk to us about the organization you were able to build. You've got to have people that have drunk the Kool-Aid. You've got to have people that are really willing to be persistent. Um, we're not the smartest guys that ever walked down the street. The one thing that we've got going is that every once in a while in your life, you, you, you have a chance. You see these chances go by you. And most of the time, you're not in a position to take advantage of that chance. You're not where you can give back to something that has succored you and and been this wonderful place where you could go where you wanted to go and do what you want to do, the Gulf of Mexico. It, it's succored us financially. It's succored us from uh, a, a life happiness standpoint. So anyhow, um, there's this little group of people that, that were all in the position where they had a little bit of time and, and energy to, and basically it was all very busy people that did this. You know, we've got a very busy industrial contractor. We've got a very busy professor. We've got a very busy talking head that is supposed to be doing real estate development. That's the permits guy. Um, and then lots of of interpersonal connections. You've got to have people that have interpersonal connections. You know, our interpersonal connections, my Bob, my brother Bob runs uh, a sporting goods store down in the Rio Grande Valley. He had been doing all of the transfers for the firearms that the CCA uses to raise money in their uh, banquets. And so we had, uh, we were already known to one of the most nimble 
best habitat organizations in the world, the CCA. The Coastal Conservation Association. Bingo, I'm sorry. Our rule is that we pay for the marine transport, which is horrifically expensive and one of the pieces that I can't get donated. And um, if you want it to go offshore, you've got to bring it to our site at the Port of Brownsville. And the Port of Brownsville is another piece of the pie. They have donated to us since 2016 a two-acre site with a rail siding and deep water port uh, frontage, which allows us to accumulate material and transship it offshore. You know, one of the reasons that we're also frantic to get as much done as we quickly can is because we're using one of these industry, business, conservation, academic partnerships that everybody talks about, and they're incredibly powerful, but there's also lots of ways for them to blow up. There's lots of moving parts. They require lots of tending to. You know, one of these days, somebody's going to come along and say, we're fixing to build a $9,000 million LNG plant. You guys take off. You know, and that'll be the end. But BNSF, that's a fabulous. BNSF is one of those corporate donors that I keep trying to do stuff for BNSF, and they say, no, no, you're doing great. Just just keep going. You know, they they do, they, they kind of hide their light under a bushel. Um, they've sent us these concrete railroad ties that I think maybe some of the very best recyclable material that you can use for reefing because they're scalable you can you can build it two feet tall or you can build it 32 feet tall and if you build it two feet tall it has great complexity and if you build it 32 feet tall it has great complexity and complexity is the key to species richness it's what builds that ecological web from the top to the bottom I would like to understand a little bit better the species richness. Um, you mentioned earlier juvenile uh, uh, snapper, red snapper, uh, an epic game fish here uh, in Texas. Um, but I also know that uh, sea turtles come by, and you mentioned yesterday that there are some corals, I guess, that are growing on these things. Yes. Um There's two different basic kinds of turtles that that inhabit and utilize the reef, um, some of them part-time and some of them full-time. The herbivores, uh, there are parts of the reef that are high enough, they get up into the photic zone, they grow um, different algae and seaweeds, and the green turtles eat that. The, the, The turtle that I think we do the most good for is all this low relief reef helps grow painted or small, not painted, painted crabs. And these crabs are the most favored food, both for red snapper and for the most endangered sea turtle in the world, the the Kemp's Ridley turtle. And the Kemp's Ridley turtle numbers have been increasing up until about five or six years ago. And, And the way they they think about the sea turtle population is by counting the number of nests. And the turtle people think that when they have 25,000 nests, they'll have a pretty good breeding population. And all through 
the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, those numbers just grew, 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 and then it plateaued. And there are a very few of the turtle biologists that think that these turtles are habitat limited. There's so much emphasis on shoreside uh, installations in, in turtle work. I think maybe a little bit of the offshore side of it is ignored. And we have camera trap video of Kemp's Ridley's turtles foraging in the reef. And, you know, I'm an amateur naturalist and pay attention. And I've watched animals. I come from a ranching background. I've watched animals eat when they're hungry and eat when they're not. Those turtles look hungry to me. Their foraging is urgent. It, it They're expending a lot of energy foraging, and animals don't expend a lot of energy foraging unless they're hungry, and a lot of times if they're in a pinch. So although we don't get basically anything out of it for providing habitat to sea turtles other than additional species richness, yes, we do good for the sea turtles. Gary, do you have you guys have been deploying material into the uh, artificial reef zone here for since 2016? So we're going into the sixth year of deployment. Uh, how much do you have a sense of the value of the work that you have completed, uh, either in terms of donations or the actual dollar figures? What what is the value of the work in in dollars? You and bet cents? you you know Gary you know, has Gary, that come on, calculated. It's got to be on your nine ninety. You know, at the value of all these donations are. But tell us about the, I mean, this is a big deal. Uh, there's got to be millions of dollars in energy and effort that have gone into this so far. It's less than you would think. Okay. And that's because we're tight um, and we're nimble. Uh, we put down material for a third to a quarter the cost of every other uh, commercial reefing contract that I've ever seen. Hmm. And it's because we use donated material. We have a donated site. We have donated legal, donated electronic footprint, donated managerial. Um, we wheedle everybody as hard as we can and scratch <laughs> like mad for this money and money does not come easily to us. Uh, I think we've spent about maybe $3 million and put down 72 million pounds of material. For example, there was uh, the only other material in RGV reef that we didn't put down was put down by an $800,000 grant in 2018. And that put down 250 reefing pyramids a total of about seven seven hundred and fifty tons, and they spend eight hundred grand. Wow! Our audited financial statements for that year showed that we spent four hundred and twenty eight thousand dollars, and we put down seven thousand tons. Ten times, ten times as much. Ten times as much material. Half the price. And I would argue that what we put down was better material because it's set up to carry all of the species from from the from the biomat that you get in on the on the bottom all the way through to the apex predators um uh, i know you mentioned earlier uh dr klein and his uh Im important role in stewarding uh this project along from the beginning uh and until present um and i know that uh you've a lot of science has been done. I mean, as as part, I'm sure, of this grant, um, there was monitoring and ongoing science. What's the impact going to be of the reef? And I'm 
I would love to hear about what we've learned uh, scientifically uh, over these years. There's not as much science done as I would like to see done in the reef because, of course, money is tight. Um, actually, here within the next week or two, and I can't talk about it, but we're going to have a big splash announcement of a new research in initiative in the reef that goes beyond just, you know, how do you put a rock down to make a fish happy? Um, that is going to be, uh, you know, I just can't talk too much about it. But even as RGV Reef is unique in the world as the first industrial scale nursery reef in the world, this piece of research is going to quantify some things that may have really far-reaching consequences, not just for the Gulf of Mexico, but for all the world's oceans. We're pretty excited about it. But the boys that are giving us the money have told us to be quiet until they can do their announcement. Well, I think we'll all be following along on rgreef.org for the announcement in a couple of weeks. Find out what that's all about. I'm very curious, but I won't, I won't ask because I understand it's under wraps. Embargoed. Embargoed. Yeah. But, th but you have been able to tell. I mean, you're, you're an active uh, fisherman, been fishing in the Gulf in this region of the Texas coast since you were eight years old. Uh, so I would say at least 30 years. I'm not going to reveal your age. <laughs> a few decades. Also embargoed. Also yeah. embargoed. But you know something about the conditions down there and how the community has responded. Tell us what the fishermen think about this project after six years. Has it made a difference to them? Oh, yes. Um, the South Padre Island sport fishing community uh, has been revitalized in a number of ways. Um, we get money from the South Padre Island Economic Development Corporation and from the South Padre Island Convention Center and Visitors Bureau, and uh, they're tighter than we are. So we have to show them <laughs> that yeah. we're making a difference. And, Good. Um, for example, every winter, there are three boats that take people out by the person, and they're called head boats because it's by the head. Mm-hmm. Those three boats left every winter. They don't leave anymore. There were two or three active charter boats um, before our GV reef because the guys just couldn't survive through. They can survive through the summer, but they couldn't survive through the winter. And uh, the state state waters snapper were so hard hit that they couldn't survive through the winter. Now there are, oh man, 20 or 30 new charter boats there. And the recreational hmm. uh, wow. fishermen are much harder to quantify, but it's obvious that there are uh, a lot more boats that are going out of South Padre Island. Now, there's uh, multi several boats, uh, anywhere from 5 to 15 or 20, on the reef every day that the weather is even marginally acceptable. Um, and that's kind of what we wanted, besides... You know, you, you got to have something that drives you. And, and what my brother and I really wanted to do was provide that experience that we had when we were young that we could go out with our father and our uncle and splash around in the boat and have the motor quit. And even though we weren't super competent fishermen, catch a fish. We want a kiddo in mom and pop's boat to be able to go catch. We don't want it to be where only the guys that are out there every day and know exactly how to do it and mm -hmm. what kind of leaders and what kind of hooks and blah, 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 blah. So 
if you want kids to be able to catch fish, if you want unsophisticated fishermen to be able to catch fish, you've got to have unsophisticated fish. And if you want to have unsophisticated fish, you have to have enough fish that they haven't all seen that hook and line three or four times and know, hey, that one got Bob, stay away. Mm-hmm. So that's the magic of growing fish. We've got some starting to have some fairly decent numbers of fish on the reef. And where there were no fish, and I've got a, I need to, this population estimates are never perfect. They're always, you take a small sample and you, and because you can't see the whole thing and you gross it up. But there's pretty good reason to think that, that where there were no fish now of, of across all the species, there's around a million fish, hmm. and that a pretty large chunk of those are red snapper because that's just the population uh, percentages that you get in a in a Gulf of Mexico reef. You know, you talked about what motivated your brother trying to you know expand the opportunity to have the experience you had that you enjoyed with your your family, your father, your uncle. Why, Gary, does that matter? That's not necessarily something everybody does. This is something that was really important to you growing up in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, When you and Bob were sitting down at a bar trying to figure out, are we going to invest the kind of energy, time, effort to actually build this out? Um, Tell me more about why that mattered to you both. You need to have an emotional component to an expedition like this. It can't just be, oh yes, well, we're gonna put down 72 million pounds of concrete. That doesn't get it. That isn't enough to make people give of themselves. The reason that we're willing to give of ourselves is because we think of the Gulf of Mexico as this wonderful place that provided us with experiences that are hard to duplicate these days. And from a from an intellectual standpoint if you want to have future conservationists they have to care about what they would be working towards and there is nothing that'll pull on the heartstrings of a child like a fish pulling on a string there's a absolutely direct connection it is as powerful as the connection from your prefrontal cortex to your nose you know, you smell that smell. You remember that thing that is visceral. You have a young fisherman. That There's something magical about that that people will go back to over and over again. And, you know, it's genetic all the way back to where we were hunter-gatherers. It makes future conservationists. It makes better rounded people. If you want the Gulf of Mexico to be a good place, people have to care about it. And that's the way to get people to care about it. Very well said, uh, Gary, and I couldn't agree more. And I, I, I think that that's actually probably why most of everyone who works uh, in the coastal and ocean space is yeah. drawn to their career paths, is some I'm- sort of deep-seated emotional connection to the space that um, permeates their from yeah. maybe from childhood on. I mean, we we talk to so many people, Peter, and we ask them this question all the time. Yeah. And we get stories. I mean, all the way from I was a kid and I toddled into the water to this to what you just said, Gary, about catching uh, a first fish. 
yeah. or being seeing tide pools for the first time. Really, uh, it is. It's it's primitive and it's emotional and it's it it's a it's a core, um, it's an it's a core appeal to yeah. to want to work in the space. It, it is true, Gary. When we're talking to people and about what motivates them to do what they do, it is so common that that comes back to uh, the observation that you made, the personal experience and the meaningfulness of this their experiences along the shoreline. Typically, it involves family or friends and the beauty of it and the fragility of it and what we're doing to the space drives people to to act. And this reef, it's funny to think about it, but you're right. This reef is designed to produce conservationists as much as it is designed to produce red snapper. Yeah. And you know, another, another interesting thing that we've done lately is we've instituted the first uh, cooperative tagging program in uh, in gulf waters in the last 15 years and and that has produced all kinds of of slightly deeper involvement with people that get in, involved in putting the tags out and the tags have their three letter identifier on them and we had we had two different uh charter groups that went out during the closed season to catch fish just to put tags in them um wow. The community is really getting involved. The headboats carry the college students out that can have all of the accoutrements to efficiently tag and weigh and measure and record the data. And then some people take it on themselves to do that, too, and they get it mostly done. We've got about 1,500 tags out right now. Um, we're helping to pay for a grad student uh, who's doing a fabulous job, Mary Beth Wabrecht. Uh, any of you people that are looking for a smart marine scientist that knows how to deal with the public here uh, about four years in the future when she gets out of school, she's a winner. And the the uh, restaurants, we have to give a reward to get tag returns, or at least we thought we did, and so we put a reward gig on there, and then we really don't want to spend the money to give people a cash reward. We want to spend that money to pay the boat to take the materials offshore. So we started pestering some of the restaurants, and the restaurants, several of the restaurants on South Padre Island who have have wanted to donate and really didn't know quite how to do it have donated uh, meal chits and uh, of course, all of the deckhands and charter boat captains, I can remember being a charter boat captain. And if we got tipped, that meant I ate. And so those mm-hmm. meal those meal tickets really work for the for that crew of, of people. Um, and we're learning some interesting things about the fish. We're getting some, you know, what we want to know is, do we provide enough groceries for the fish? And so we can use growth over time we can use length versus weight to tell some of those things since we're providing this huge production line of juveniles and carrying them through that time period when their mortality rates are through the roof are are we providing fish to the surrounding reefs which i think we are and i think that we'll start catching all right tagged fish off the reef although fish are exceptionally uh have high what the biologists call site fidelity red snapper they don't move even if the habitat is really crappy they don't move and and we've got this smorgasbord of food and habitat for fish so 
at some point we're going to start raising enough babies that we don't have enough room for them and and that slop will go out and and populate other reefs and of course every time there's a big hurricane it'll wash a ton of them off Hmm. um but we don't know how many and the tagging program um will help us learn that and it's also generating a lot uh, a lot more community involvement because people can get involved volunteers put out 1500 tags last year they'll put out another 1500 this year and there's a lot of people that have their little sticker and they get their little lesson on how to put the tag in just perfectly where it sticks right in the little fin and won't come out and you know it's great so let me uh, so just for the the non-technical biology people out there so uh we're on a headboat i'm out there i got my pole i go down i grab a snapper i reel it up uh, it looks like a nice fish we put a tag in it and then the fish is relief back we record the specifics of the of the fish its size weight that kind of thing tag it record it and drop it back into the reef so you're hoping what when it is caught again, you can figure out how the fish has grown in that particular time period. Am I following it along right? Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. And how did okay. it move? Where did it go? Right. And then if I pull one up and I'm going to harvest that fish and it's got a tag, I can take the tag to a restaurant and get like maybe an appetizer, maybe some fried clams. You have to talk to Mary Beth first. but the, the, <laughs> I love it. I the, think that's a great idea. You know, the, the real home run is you go to the restaurant and, and a lot of the restaurants on South Padre Island will cook your catch and there is no better fish than fish that a has not been frozen and b is cooked by somebody that knows the drill right so that's great um you know it works like gangbusters it's what a great project and and gary have you been since you started this and i i know that you actually have a profession that you uh a business that you have to run um how much time are you and bob still spending on the rg reef project and uh, can you still can you still carry the load of this thing? It seems like it's gotten pretty big. Well, one of the things that's helped a lot is that um, I've gone half time with my day job. Uh, my day job was a really intense about fifty hour a week gig, um, so half time allows me a lot more time for the reef. But the reef has lots and lots of moving parts and requires a lot a lot of time and effort by a lot of people to keep that finely tuned machinery clicking along efficiently. And what's on your plate now? I mean, uh, 2022, are you planning on deploying once or twice this year? What's kind of the growth strategy? We we had a fairly large deployment in uh, June of 2021, and um, we cleaned our yard. We moved every scrap of concrete on our yard, and it was 12,600 uh, tons, 25,200,000 pounds. And uh, COVID has slowed, COVID and its some other effects have slowed throughput on the railway. Now, BNSF donates these concrete railroad ties to us uh, but they have to not be busily moving scrap I mean steel scrap the price of steel scrap has gone through the roof the the wood moving wood is huge moving all those cars that don't have chips to parking lots is huge and so I've got about 
four or 5,000 tons on the site right now, 8 million pounds. But a really good, efficient deployment is 12,000 to 15,000 tons, 20 to 30 million pounds. And I don't think I'm going to have enough material on the site to do another deployment. And you've got to catch a good weather window, too. Mm -hmm. Um, We might catch a weather window that would be winter of next year, or we might catch a weather window that is July, August, September, October of 23. Uh, The Texas General Land Office has a grant program called Coastal Management Program. They have Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act money. This is the money that the feds get from oil leases in federal waters in the Gulf of Mexico. They had a project of special merit uh, grant application that closed this May, and we won 750 grand to Great. move material. So that'll move about 10,000 tons. And between now and when we have 15,000 tons on the site, which is a good economy of scale for it in using industrial facilities, great big uh, offshore service vessels to move that material, I got to scare up another. Three, four, five hundred grand. All right. Well, shout out to George P. Bush and the Coastal Division at the Texas General Land Office who've uh, put some money behind this project. I remember, Gary, when you were first talking about this, the folks in Austin, Texas, the state agency people were a little skeptical of this guy and his brother who were cooking up this idea that to create a big giant reef off the South Texas coast. And over the years, I think you've proven it to them that you're trustable and this thing has become an award-winning program, I understand it now. Yeah. I won an award? Didn't you? Oh, well, we were were recognized by... um, a group called Texan by Nature. Mm-hmm. Um, they select the what they think are ten uh, good uh, conservation groups every year and try to introduce them to industry. And a lot of our money comes from industry: um, grant money, industry money, foundation money. Um, that's where the the big money comes from. We also get what and we call that whale money, and we also get minnow money. And the minnow money is important to us too, and it's important to help us raise money because if some corporation or foundation is thinking about making a donation, they absolutely want to know if the community cares about what you're doing, and they want to know if the community's got skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that, I think that, we appreciate that little money every bit as much as we appreciate the big money, not only because it leverages money for us, but guess what? We'd like to know that, that the locals care about what we're doing too. Of course. And uh, I'm curious now that you've been at it for uh, several years, we've got this delineated acreage, 1,650 acre permitted display uh, site where you can, uh, place material are you 50 percent full are you 40 percent full how much more room is there how much more over the next do you see yourself doing this for the next 10 years or is this going to be complete and then you and your brother go fishing and and call it a day what's what's the long-term future look like for you and your brother well so there's a couple three different ways and you know the people that we go to and pester for money they ask that same question and what they're asking is 
when are you going to quit pestering us for money? When are you going to go? <laughs> when is it full? When are you going to go away? And, you know, from an internal standpoint, I think that we'll be done when the marginal utility of an additional ton of material starts to be less than the previous ton that we put in the water. Um, and that probably means we'll damn near never be done. The Right now, uh, I calculated the bottom coverage. We have 14 tons on every acre, okay? So if you think about seven suburban lots, you've got one dump truck of material. Think about one dump truck of material like uh, topsoil or, or um, uh, mulch in the driveway of one house in seven. That's how much material we've got out wow. there. Um, you know, 1,650 acres, I mean, we, that rolls off our tongue, but if that was a metropolitan, uh, statistical area, it would hold 45,000 people. Um, we have about 250 of these reef patches on, on the reef. And most of them, uh, range in size from a hundred feet in diameter to about 250 feet in diameter for a very few larger piles. Um, I think that we still have increasing marginal utility and the research, some recent research done at the Heart Research Institute uh, on fine scale movement indicates that that's the case. And, and what's going on is fish need to be able to move around without getting eaten to find the most optimal spot on the reef. Um, if you go to our website, the opening little piece of video shows a whole bunch of little bitty baby snappers and they're kind of flitting around in the in the water column and and they're plucking passing plankton and they're just happy as they can be and all of a sudden woof they all dive into this pile of rocks and after a count of about one two and a half three really hungry jackfish cruise by mm -hmm. and you can see them they it's look a great in, video they look in the holes and they say oh crap we can't catch any of them and off they go yeah that's so, great they know those fish are coming for a count of about two. So they don't want to get any further from a hole than they can swim in a count of about two because they can good. hear them coming. Very good. So originally, you know, we made a mistake. We thought, oh, the way to, to lower predation is to keep these uh, – reef patches separated about 400 feet and we put them out there on grids of 400 feet and we did them in iterations of seven so we could get statistical significance on the research and we did some a little bit like this and some a little bit like that and it turns out we were making these islands mm -hmm. that um fish are trapped on the little fish are trapped on those and so what we're doing now is we're going back and putting patches in between those patches so that they can communicate. And, you know, a, a patch that has too many fish and not enough groceries, well, the fish can swim. Migrate. They can move around on the reef. And, and we know from on the larger scale, we know that those fish do move around quite a bit on the reef. The fish that are from 12 to 16 inches They'll be here one day, and then they're two or 300 yards away the next day. The large concentration of them that, that the fishermen are going after. Um, you were talking about tagging on a headboat. Because this is a, a 
a nursery reef, we've got a lot of juvenile fish that are not 15 inches, which is where they are keepers. They enter the directed fishery. So if they catch two or three shorts for every fish, that means that, A, those fish are going through the the relatively small, I really can't believe how small the catch mortality is from that, but there is some mortality associated um, with being caught. Now, our reef is shallow. It runs from 65 to 75 feet deep, and so there isn't a whole lot of barrel trauma from being caught, but you still have some mortality. Well, if we can do something positive with that uh, catch catch rate of shorts, like tagging them so we can learn something, it's really win, win, win. Awesome. You know, I'm wondering, Gary, when you were a youngster and and when the reefs or the fish, let's say the fishing was substantially better than it was when you returned in your 20s and 30s, um, I'm curious about what do you think uh, led to the substantial decline in the health of the fisheries off the Texas coast and particularly uh, South Texas. And I want to throw out one thing I've read and, and, and tell me if of what I'm reading is accurate. There was a, a substantial shrimp fishery uh, in South Texas for many, many years and dragging those nets over the bottom for decade after decade had destroyed the bottom uh, structure and that all of these small nursery reef areas were basically destroyed by the shrimpers. Now, I don't know if that's a true story or not, Gary. What have you learned or what are your scientist friends telling you? Uh, what what accounts for the for the decline? Well, the decline in fish across the Gulf of Mexico is really astoundingly large. There are multiple yeah. species of fish out there that um, are so diminished that the the remaining population and I'm not a scientist, but I got taught to count by biologists when I was little. I hung around with biologists when I was little. Um, it's the death of a thousand cuts, but there are some cuts that are deeper than others. Um, we have a bunch of overfishing. We have a bunch of illegal overfishing across the United States' exclusive economic zone. Yeah. Um, the uh, Congress has just uh, declared Mexico to be an IUU country. Um, let's see if I can remember what those mean. Um, illegal. illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishery. Correct. Yeah. Um, the um, and and we need a lot more enforcement down there um, by the Coast Guards estimates, which I think is uh, are a little bit light, 790,000 pounds of fish go back across the EEZ every year. Um, wow. The, um, I think that microplastics are not good for any of us, and they're ubiquitous, and I don't know, but I suspect that we're going to find that as these plastics get broken down and leach out, uh, chemicals like bisphenol A, that's that BPA that you see that mm -hmm. you're not supposed to have on your drinking vessel. Yep. Um, you know, that's a that's an endocrine disruptor. The Every animal's body is incredibly sensitive to hormones. Just parts per billion will make people act like idiots. <laughs> and 
I think that that's a problem. Uh, according to Texas Parks and Wildlife's uh, comprehensive management plan, if you trawl a bottom with any kind of bottom trawl, it reduces the productivity of, of that bottom. If it's trawled once, it reduces the productivity of that bottom from six months to five years. If it's trawled multiple times, which the entire Texas continental shelf has been out to about 25 fathoms, which is um, 20, 120, about 140, 150 feet, it's been trawled multiple times. And according to Texas Parks and Wildlife, that that hinders the productivity of the bottom from 10 years to in perpetuity. Wow. Um, one yeah. of the things that, that we have identified as a huge benefit to juvenile survivability are these soft corals that are called whip corals. And um, they just look like a bunch of sticks. Uh, they're, uh, they look about like a, a regular pencil and they grow up a little bit off the bottom uh, which allows the fish to get up the, these babies. We've seen them. They get up and they use that as escape cover when they're threatened by uh, bigger fish, and and they can get up in the water column where there's a little. It's a little less murky. They can see that passing plankton and pull it out of the water column, and. Uh, there's no hard substrate on the bottom. If you drag a tickler chain across the bottom, the very few whip corals that are there that are stuck to old shells and maybe uh, a drowned caliche lump or a loosely cemented organic piece of sandstone that was the bottom of, of, of a drowned dune, which, of course, the almost our entire continental shelf was drowned over the last 40,000 years as the last... Ice Age, the end of the Pleistocene, the Ice Age ended, the, the ice caps melted, and sea, route, sea mm-hmm. levels come up 480 feet yeah. since 40,000 years ago. But that material is friable, it's soft, and it's easily degraded. And so part of what RGV Reef is, uh, with these great big ugly pieces of concrete deployed in it, is a, a de facto marine protected area. Yeah. And the other thing that you do is when you put good material on the bottom, something with sharp corners and flat edges in it, um, it generates little vortices in the water. And then that can help, of course, it also generates a spot where these fish can get out of the unceasing current and quit having to ride their peloton every second and turn food into body mass exactly what the ladies at peloton are trying to undo (laughs) the um i love that comparison well yeah we got to give them a place to be quiet where they can sit in a quiet water and get larger it's resting cover for them yeah um it's also ambush cover for them these little vortices uh also kind of bamboozle their planktonic play uh, uh prey as it moves through the water column. It slows it down. It, it bamboozles it. It allows them to go out and catch it. Um, but it, it also pulls organics down out of the water column and deposits them just barely thick enough on the surrounding area that it forms a biomat. Mm-hmm. And that biomat of microscopic organisms feeds the crustaceans, the crabs, the mantis shrimp, uh, the all of the species of shrimp, the brown and white shrimp. Um, and so that re 
stores rejuvenates. It helps the bottom of the food chain, and the bottom of the food chain is a piece that's missing from the puzzle of where the hell did all the fish go. The you got to have that if you want. You've got to have groceries if you want to grow fish. This is netless, bag of feedless aquaculture. Love it. Great way to describe it. I've got to think, Gary, when you started this, I know that you've been curious and have been a person who cared about the coast and the environment for a long time. But it seems like the level of knowledge that you have gained in doing this for the last uh, seven, eight years is just really incredible the understanding of the ecology, the sophistication, the complexity of fisheries management and fishery life cycle. It's got to be a lot of fun for you. Yeah, it is. You know, I'm kind of nerdy and I like to know how things work. And um, nobody listens, none of the reef managers, they listen to the marine biologist. They just can't do what the marine biologists think is the best. Hmm. It's too hard. Hmm. And it's become harder and harder as the... RFPs, the request for proposals, and the uh, bidding, uh, the bid process makes it where you can only use one kind of material. Everybody's bid has to be the same. You all have to put down the exact same thing. It has to be these prefabricated reefing pyramids. And I got nothing against reefing periods. Man, they're a great habitat. We have 300 one dimensional of them in, them. in our reef. Yeah. They're only one step in the habitat yeah. ladder. Yep, yep. What a cool story, Gary. I'm so glad to have you on this show to update us on this great project. Um, it's a tremendous success. I got to tell you, when we when we first started work, I think Tyler and I were working on the grants back when we were doing consulting. It's like one to, of the first things we worked on together, actually. Yeah, trying to put a little money in your pocket to get this off the ground. And now years later, 72 million tons of material. I mean, what an extraordinary success for you and the organization, for your brother, and all of the people who've contributed to this. Uh, it's really awesome to, to hear how, how it's gone. I'm just so so thrilled to, to get the update. Well, thanks. And uh, we absolutely did not do it ourselves. We had a huge amount of help. There are several heroes of the reef. Please go to our website, rgvreef.org, and go to our heroes page. That shows all of the folks that have contributed to RGV Reef and uh, their myriad, um, and, and we wouldn't be there without them, and we're just so grateful for their help. That's fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Gary Glick. He is the president of Friends of the RGV Reef, one of the premier, I think, coastal restoration and conservation organizations in the state of Texas, doing tremendous work. Check out their website rgvreef.org a great organization and put a check in the mail to gary they're going to put some more material down in this area they need some dollars big and small are welcome thank you very much gary for your time